Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. I'm your host, Katrina Crow, curator of the First Thought Talks series. This episode was recorded in September 2020 as part of Galway International Arts Festival's Autumn Edition, which took place against the backdrop of COVID-19 and marked a return to Galway's Black Box Theatre for the first time since March. Inevitably, live events look very different this year. For some talks, we were joined by a socially distanced audience. Others went out to online-only audiences. We thank you now for joining us here on the podcast and becoming yet another member of our extended audience. The first Thought Talk series at GIAF's 2020 Autumn Edition were presented in association with NUI Galway. One hundred years ago, next 21st of November, over 30 people were killed in three separate events. The assassination of British intelligence agents by Michael Collins' squad in the morning, the shooting and reprisal of civilians at a match in Croke Park in the afternoon, and the torture and killing of Dick McKee, Patrick Clancy, and Conor Clune at Dublin Castle that night. History is turning its gaze on violence and its effects during this turbulent period, and two eminent historians will enlighten us about new perspectives on what happened that day. They are Paul Rouse, professor at the School of History at University College Dublin, and author of The Definitive History of Sport in Ireland, and Anne Dolan, associate professor of modern history at Trinity College Dublin, and author of Commemorating the Irish Civil War, History and Memory, 1923 to 2000, and an acknowledged expert on the, the growing uh, discipline of looking at trauma in history. Our moderator will be Dermot Ferreter, Professor of Modern Irish History at University College Dublin, author of vast numbers of books, which are too long to go into now, but the most recent was The Border, The Legacy of a Century of Anglo-Irish Politics, and he will guide our two historians through this um, interesting topic. Dermot. Thank you very much, Katrina. Uh, good morning to you all. I want to thank Katrina for her introduction, but also for all she and her festival colleagues are doing and have been doing uh, in the run-up to these events to uh, make them possible and to make them realistic. It's really lovely to have you here with us. Uh, and for those of us who are joining online, a very good morning to you as well. It's always a pleasure and a privilege to be in Galway. But especially so, given all the difficulties and convulsions uh, at the moment, uh, it means a lot, I think, that we can uh, gather in this unusual way, but gather nonetheless. Uh, to reflect on a dark day, a seminal moment in modern Irish history. If I speak the words Bloody Sunday, I'm speaking words that provoke deep responses the sense of a deep communal wound for nationalist Ireland, a sense of great embarrassment uh, for the British authorities that the war in Ireland was not being contained. And I often think of Ireland in 1920 as a place where there were different wars going on. There's a military conflict. There's also a political battle going on. There are propaganda wars. There are intelligence wars. And there are many victims. There are perpetrators. There are victims. There are many fatalities of both civilians and soldiers. And what we want to do today really is tease out uh, some of these themes. What exactly happened on Bloody Sunday in November 1920? How did it happen? Why did it happen? What kind of narratives were current in the immediate aftermath of Bloody Sunday and how did they develop over time? Do we still have new things to say about Bloody Sunday 100 years on. It was, of course, 
the first Bloody Sunday, there was to be another in 1972, and it has been suggested that the two are on a par with each other in terms of the impact that they had, perhaps their sense of being a turning point. Um, and that is something we can perhaps have a look at later, and we'd certainly welcome uh, your questions towards the end. But I thought it would be helpful at the outset to establish, insofar as we can establish, what happened on Bloody Sunday. Trina mentioned that there were uh, the events of the morning and then the afternoon. So I'm just going to ask um, our guests here to take us through uh, an overview of what happened on the morning and then the afternoon. So Anne, perhaps you tell us about the morning's events first. Great, thanks Dermot and again thanks to Katrina and to everyone here. It's, it's great to actually be in a room with people. I haven't done that in several months now so apologies if I'm just not used to it anymore. Um, Bloody Sunday is quite unlike any other day in the Irish Revolution's calendar not least because it's possibly one of the most violent and dramatic days seen up to this point. Um, November 21st began with the killing of 14 men in their lodgings, boarding houses, uh, hotels in Dublin. A 15th died of his wounds on December 10th. At 9am, the IRA went into 12 locations that we know of, um, and men were killed or wounded at nine of them. At various addresses in Upper and Lower Mount Street, Morehampton Road, Bagot Street, Pembroke Street, Northumberland Road, Earlsford Terrace, all in that area around and beyond Merrion Square on the south side of the city. And then on the north side, uh, two men were killed at the Gresham Hotel. Others were sought but were either not at home, as in Randler Road, some escaped, as at Lower Leeson Street, or things were just called off at the last moment, as in a case in a house in Fibsborough. Enormous amounts of planning went into all of this by the Dublin Brigade IRA, and indeed you can almost see a lull of activity uh, beforehand in Dublin because men are being, being kept back and being prepared for this. A variety of companies were involved from the 2nd and 3rd Battalions and at each location visited. There was usually an intelligence officer, maybe a member of the squad, and then a number of ordinary volunteers. So, for example, at 38 Upper Mount Street, where two men were killed, it's been estimated around 15 or 20 people went into the house uh, where the shooting took place, and, but there were more outside uh, on watch. Others were there to bring weapons to them and then to take them away. So there's a lot of people involved in each one of these incidents. And we're finding out more about this, about how many people were there, who was there, where, uh, mainly because of things like the release of the military service pension files, where we're really getting a sense of who was actually where. We're really still finding this stuff out. Most men were told what was to happen the night before, where the shooting was maybe to take place, and who would go with them to identify the man that was going to be shot. But if you think about it, a little bit over 12 hours before these shootings took place, many of the men involved still didn't really know or knew very little about what was going to happen. They had that night to think about shooting a man, as one of them said, in cold blood, a man they maybe knew only as a name or to be at a certain address somewhere in the city. Charles Dalton, who was an intelligence officer, age 17, I think, around about this time, recalled sitting at the fire that night, talking well into the night because, as he said, like the others, I could not sleep. I was wrought up thinking of what we had to do the next morning, and I could feel that the other men were the same. Some knew where to meet, where to collect their guns and ammunition, who was going to be waiting on guard, who was going to patrol the stairs, who would go with the intelligence officer and the squad man to do the shooting in the room. Others knew far less. They were just told where to go, and as one of them said, to be ready for a job in the morning. We weren't told what we were to do. So at nine o'clock they gathered and all of this began simultaneously. All of this was about sending a message. There was a very clear drama to it. The fact that those doors 
opened simultaneously, whether by arrangement or by force, at all of those different addresses. The fact that it all happens at the same time and the fact that it was a Sunday, I don't think, you know, wasn't meant to be lost on people either. Within, about, within minutes, 19 men had been shot, five wounded, 14 dead, as I said, a, a 15th died uh, on the 10th of December. And it was really about a show of what could be done, sending a message that effectively the IRA was saying, we know where you live, we're prepared to take advantage of you where you're most vulnerable. And there's a shock value in it too. Men were shot in their homes, in their beds, in some instances, in front of their wives, in one case in front of a child. And this was a significant part of the British response in terms of propaganda. And that sense they had that something had shifted in the nature of violence in, in Ireland at the time. You see barricades being erected around Downing Street very shortly after this. And Neville Macready, who was commander of the British forces in Ireland, called this day the Irish Saint Bartholomew. So within a mere matter of minutes, these men were done. They disappeared in most cases across the city. They faded away and with their morning's work finished. And for some, those few minutes effectively shaped the rest of their lives. So 19 men shot. Yeah, injured in some shape or form, yeah. yeah. We would have read narratives yeah. over the years mm -hmm. that this was about trying to wipe out yeah. the British Secret Service, Service agents in Ireland. Yeah. Were they all involved in that kind of work? Or is, was that too sweeping an assertion? It is a very sweeping assertion and it fits a very particular view of the day. Um, Collins comes up with that defence very quickly. He goes to the treaty negotiations in London with this really interesting defence of this day um, in his head, saying that, you know, I wiped out, you know, spies in war. We have to treat them as such. They're fair game, effectively. Um, and that's what I was doing. That narrative gets continued on and on. Collins himself is saying something very different in private. Um, the case of uh, one man in the Gresham Hotel, Captain McCormack, who had been a, a veterinary officer in the, uh, in the Royal Army Veterinary Corps in the First World War. He was over probably in Ireland buying horses. Uh, his mother writes to Richard Mulcahy years later, or very soon afterwards, sorry, to say that, you know, could you please say that my son wasn't a spy? So there's, there's him straight away. There's Thomas Smith, who's a landlord in one of the houses. Hasn't really got anything to do with this. He just happens to have lots of lodgers who are involved in some shape or form. Maybe six of them are intelligence officers. Some working secretly, a couple of them under assumed names. There's two court martial officers. Um, there's two auxiliaries who happen to be passing by. A maid shouts out for help. These two guys are sent for, for backup. They're shot, so to what extent? Are, yeah. you, you can't really say that they are. Yeah. You know, you've even uh, one other guy who we, we really don't know who he is. He's this man of mystery in the Gresham Hotel, to be honest with you. So maybe you could say maybe six of that six, maybe two of them are operating under assumed names. The rest of them are openly going around in army uniforms. I think what makes this even more interesting is if you start to break it down further still, why, there's reasons why that type of narrative suits as time goes on. Yeah. Not least because of what happens in the afternoon. Yeah. But because if you start to say, well, they weren't all yeah. intelligence officers, this becomes a very different yeah. thing. And we'll, we'll come back to that. And I mean, yeah. it, it is a reminder, of course, of, of the danger of these sweeping Absolutely. generalizations or assertions yeah. that were made. Yeah. Um, now, Paul, given the extent of that slaughter in the morning, the speed with which it happened, and I'm thinking 100 years ago of how news would have spread uh, in, in a small, compact city like Dublin. Um, you know, this news would have spread very, very, very quickly. And yet, it was only the beginning. What happened in the afternoon? What happened in the afternoon? If it's, if it's difficult to explain what happened around a covert military operation, for an entirely different reason, it's difficult to explain 
with any precision exactly what happened in the afternoon. Partly because it's not clear how many people were even at the match. News reports said that there were between 5,000 and 15,000 at the game that was staged in Croke Park. There were actually two matches in Croke Park, not one. There was a Dublin club match on before the main game. That was delayed. And for other reasons, the match, a tournament game to raise funds between Dublin and Tipperary, then two of the best three or four Gaelic football teams in the country, had been set to start at 2.45. And for reasons which are not absolutely clear, the game didn't start till 3.15. But while preparations for that game were ongoing and people were travelling into the city and travelling across the city to Croke Park, different units of what we will loosely call the British security forces were assembling in different parts of the city to travel to Croke Park. Now, there were major disputes as to what precisely they were doing in Croke Park, and really well laid out by uh, historian David, Le David Leeson in the Canadian Journal of History, who writes about the events of the afternoon. And he talks about that historical debate between were they there to conduct uh, a search and detain mission to look for those men who they believed were involved in carrying out the operation in the morning and were using the cover of the game to escape back out of Dublin and down the countryside because for much of the War of Independence, as we know, Dublin was quite becalmed and it was people coming into the city, notably from Tipperary and the arrival of Sean Tracy and other people like that, which had escalated the war in Dublin in the second half of, of 1920. But, so there was an idea that they were there. So were they there on search and destroy or search and detain or were they there to wreak revenge? And of course the answer lies that there was, it ended up being being an idea. It might have started as one thing and it drifted in to the other. So there were the Dublin Metropolitan Police, the Royal Irish Constabulary, the Black and Tans and uh, members of the British Army. British Armies had come in from Collinstown. There were people who, there were about a, a hundred initially members of the Black and Tans but it grew in greater numbers who came in across the tenders across the city. Some came down Jones's Road along the, uh, to the Canal Bridge. Others came along Clonliffe Road to the other end behind what people will now know as the Nally Stand. And the members of, others came to a third entrance, the three main entrances, which is behind what we would now know as, as Hill 16. So they came to three entrances. And there were express instructions given to the men before they left was to wait until 15 minutes before the end of the game and then search every man they never said woman, but there were women at the game, but search every man as they left the ground and detain those who they suspected or those who were carrying weapons. Now, because the match was delayed, they got there early. And it's not quite clear what happened next because there was a cover-up, both an intense and immediate cover-up, which we can talk about, if you like, within the British state and the British military, who made incredible claims that the first shots had been fired from inside the ground. The great bulk of the evidence would suggest that the first shots were fired outside the ground and they were actually fired by, people, by, two, by two soldiers as they crossed, by two policemen as they crossed the canal bridge. And the first boy shot, uh, there was a young boy called Robinson who was 12 years of age who was watching in a tree behind what we would now call the Davin stand into the ground and, an, and another boy called Jerome O'Leary who was sitting on the wall watching the game and they were the first two shot and they die when they hit the ground. The soldiers pour in that canal end entrance and the shooting lasts 90 seconds. And in those 90 seconds, there's more than 100 people injured. There are, it, it, again, it's not clear 
initially exactly how many were killed. People die in at different stages in different days, but it's generally settled on now the figure of 14 people uh, who, were, who were shot dead in the account. Nine of them shot, in the, uh, sh shot from behind as they went across. Two men died in a crush when a wall fell on them as they tried to escape. Another was shot in, with ricocheted bullets. But either ways, within a week, there are 14 people dead in, lying in, 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 in morgues in two hospitals in, in the Matter and in Jervis Street. And Paul, would they have represented a broad section of Irish society at that time? Uh, or you know, were these primarily poorer, poorer Dubliners? It's, it's really interesting to look at the most famous person who was killed on the day is Michael Hogan, the Tipperary footballer who was shot in the field and of whom the Hogan stand in Crow Park is, is after whom it, it, it is named. But when you go down the list, from look, look at like Jerome O'Leary, uh, his father was from Cork, or as far as uh, his father, his mother uh, was from Cork, his father is an, uh, an accountant. He was 10 years of age. And when his father went and identified his body in the, in, in, in the Matter Hospital uh, morgue, he was just quoted as saying, he was a schoolboy. So that's, that's the youngest person who was shot. You look at somebody um, like Patrick O'Dowd, who was 57 years of age. He, he was a builder's labourer. He worked in Clark's in Fairview. And on his funeral, is, uh, it was led by his son and his daughter, who, who walked, and all the men from the builders in, Clark's builders in Fairview walked behind the cortege, uh, to, to his funeral. But I think the most, I suppose, uh, or one of the more interesting ones is Michael Feary, if interesting is the right word to use in this context, is Michael Feary, who was 40 years of age. His body lay for five days unidentified in the Morgan in, 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 in Jervis Street. And now, Michael Feary was malnourished. His teeth were rotted in his head. He was... Um, considered to be sick and ill already, but he was wearing army boots and tattered army fatigues. Mm. And, and he lived on Buckingham Street in one of the old tenements on Buckingham Street. And this was a man who had fought in the Great War for the British Army, was one of that group of ordinary Irish people who had joined the British Army and come back and had nothing after the war. He had joined the great masses of unemployed people in the city and, and had gone to the game as a social outlet. It's a walk down to the place. And if you look at the roll call of people who, who, who died, it's, it's working class and lower middle class people from, from around the city who went to the game. And that story of the, the First World War background, Dan, I mean, it, it's relevant also to what happened in the morning. When you think yeah. of these complex ties and allegiances yeah. uh, and, and, and service in, in, in different guises, because presumably some of these people who were shot in the morning would have also had Irish connections. Yeah, I think about five or six of them have some form of Irish connection. Like there's one guy, um, I think Captain Fitzgerald is Irish. He's al he'd already been attacked in Clare. He'd been in the First World War. I think 14 of them had, be had some sort of First World War record. But like, you know, what you've just said there, like the two auxiliaries who were killed, um, both of them had been, to the First World had been in the First World War. One from Hull, came back from the war, couldn't find a job, joins the auxiliaries. Same with the other chap. They both joined the auxiliaries in the same day and they're both buried apparently in the same sort of row in a, in a graveyard together. Yeah. Two, this guy had been a, came back from the war, tried to be a hairdresser in London, tried, was a tram conductor again, let go. And again, ends up in Ireland because like that, no work after the First World War. So there's lots of very, very different backgrounds, very different social backgrounds. Um, 
but you know what what is striking is that 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 cohort of of you know British soldiers or auxiliaries or whatever they might be the the number of them who end up here because they they can't get work after the first war in, in Britain yeah. but what you also have then is a cousin of the the better known Montgomery if you like the field marshal of later time like you know you get this very different types of cohorts of people and you can see that reflected in, in the fact that they're high officer class you have two court martial officers who obviously have, have been called to the bar so people have very very yeah. diverse backgrounds there but uh, and I, like, you're very interested in the nature of killing and the nature of the kind of killing that we're talking about um, wh why is that such a fertile ground for research by the historian now. Is it partly because of, of some of the sources you were talking about earlier on that we can actually yeah. begin to think, but both in terms of those who were pulling the triggers mm -hmm. and on the yeah. receiving end, we can begin yeah. to think um, of, of, of the nature of these yeah. Yeah. Uh, individual acts. Yeah, because I mean, in some ways, when you look at Ireland in the context of other places, this isn't a very violent place. Like there are other parts of Europe that are much more violent in the post-war period. What I'm struck by more and more when you look at the records, and particularly the British records, how taken aback by our, they are by some of these events here, which in some ways aren't as violent as some of the violence they're involved with in other, other parts of the world themselves. But they're very struck by Bloody Sunday. And it's the fact that I think you've had up to this, you've had maybe two Dublin Metropolitan policemen were shot outside their homes. They're really taken aback by the fact that here you have people going into houses and shooting people in their pajamas. I think in one case, I think the one that really strikes them, that they, they shoot um, Smith and two others in that house in Moorhampton uh, Road in front of the, a, a nine or ten year old child. And this stuff really seems to resonate. This is, there's something kind of shocking about this as far as they're concerned. And you would think, why are they shocked by this? But they do seem to be genuinely taken aback by it. And you get this very odd um, strain of propaganda coming out of Dublin Castle in the months afterwards about this isn't fair play, these men aren't wearing uniforms, come out and let us you know, show yourselves. And in a way, the fact that you have these men in lodging houses around the city of Dublin at the time shows you the extent to which they're trying to catch up with the type of war that's, like, that's, that's happening in Dublin. Um, I suppose what I'm struck by is, <coughs> sorry, many of the sources that have been out there for a long time but also the fact that you now have things like the military service pensions. You're getting men talking about themselves, what they felt about what they did in those years, whether it's in the 20s and the 30s with the military service pensions and across the years after through those records, which are absolutely wonderful and are most nearly all available now online for you to look at. You've got, the, but they also had lots of opportunities to talk about their wars, if you like, all the way through, whether it's pensions, Bureau of Military History, they spoke to Ernie O'Malley about it. And what they reveal are some of the, the, if you like, the problems they had themselves with this. And so, like Todd Andrews talks about th this day in particular. He went to one of the addresses, the person he was, he was supposed to target wasn't there. But he said himself, like, I had problems with this idea of going to shoot some, shooting someone in cold blood. But didn't he compare this to the tactics of the Black and Tans? Yeah, but at the same time they have problems with it. And some of them, you know, the, even I think the, the night before, some of them are sort of brought into to this meeting in Gardner Street and some of them are even at that stage are said, if you don't want to do this, go home. But they're so only this. really kids though, aren't they? Yeah, like Charles Alton, I said, he's an intelligence officer. He's, you know, he's 17. Vinnie Byrne is around about 17. A number of them haven't had a huge amount of experience in any of this. Um, I mean, I'm even thinking of the moment. Yeah. I mean, these would not necessarily have been steady hands from no. seasoned warriors. And I mean, you can see that in terms of the, 
what's the, the, the sort of landscape of the room after this is over, for, it's an awful way of putting it, but there's bullet holes all over the place. Many of these men are shot multiple times in places that, you know, you don't kill someone yeah. by shooting them in certain yeah. parts of the body and all this. So yeah, you can see absolutely there's, there's a lot of nervousness about it. Charles Dalton really suffers that night. Um, he, he thinks he can hear blood. And Sean Lamass talks about this in Dalton's pension application. Mm. Dalton himself spoke about it on a number of different occasions that he could hear a tap. There was and a tap and running. this is decades later. And this Ooh. is decades. I, like, Dalton ends up in, uh, being treated for a long time in a variety of different asylums. Yeah. Yeah. And this same day keeps coming back. A number of them talk about this day as being the one that yeah. has an effect on them. Like I think it's a man called John MacDonald, um, or Don, John O'Donnell. He's in Morehampton Road. And his referee in the pension, his pension application says he cracked up because of this day. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he said he, he keeps hearing this child saying to him, don't shoot my daddy. Um, it, I suppose a, a lot of that material is a very good antidote to the propaganda as well. Yeah. Um, and propaganda on, from the British side, Paul, was important too in that, okay, the GA is the IRA at play. That's the yeah. message that they would prefer uh, to mm -hmm. communicate. That this shooting began uh, inside, uh, even though few would accept that now. Uh, is it beyond the bounds of possibility that there were shots fired inside? It is extremely unlikely. There is no evidence has been produced that is sustainable, that, is, that, that, it, that it, the shooting began inside. But Remarkably, there were IRA men inside. There were, and it's, it's, um, it's really interesting if you look at what, what, what happened after the game. There are two statements issued by Dublin Castle on the Sunday afternoon, one succeeding the next, about the nature of sh the shootings at Dublin Castle. There's a statement in the House of Commons on the Monday and then it's reframed again on the Tuesday when Sir Hammer Greenwood, the Under Secretary for Ireland, uh, or Chief, Sec Chief, Secretary, yeah. Chief Secretary for Ireland, when, when Hammer Greenwood stands up and says there is, and I quote, irrefutable evidence mm. that the shooting began inside. And then he talked about the crush to death. Now, two people were crushed to death, yeah. but it was as if the entire thing was there. So it kicks in straight away. Straight away, and it's taken up by, it's, it's amazing. We think the world has changed hugely in in a hundred years, but the Daily Mail run with the, with the government line and they talk about how, um, you know, the, the terrorism of the morning and the response by the state and they parrot the government line that these are, these were, this was a, an attempt to peacefully detain IRA men at a match when the soldiers were fired on from inside. Yeah. And meanwhile, the Guardian on its hand, on its other hand, sends investigative journalists over and they're, what they produce is a version which is entirely at odds with that and, and much more sympathetic mm. to what emerges as, as uh, the nationalist reading. Because of, they saw of, it as a reprisal. They saw it as a reprisal and it was already referred to in The Guardian as kind of the Irish Amritsar, a re reference yeah. to what had happened in... in and th there's probably a broader issue going on there in relation to journalists being determined that they will not endure the same censorship that they did during coverage of the First World War. There might be an element of, like, we're sending people to report what is happening as opposed to the propaganda machine is pumping out. Exactly, and they came over, and, it's, and, and what made it really interesting is the British Labour Party sent over a commission to investigate Bloody Sunday as well, and they said this was a reckless, a wild, uh, out-of-control, armed operation which uh, emphasised the, the, the 
poverty of British rule in Ireland and, and how it was, it was essentially um, indefensible what had happened. And there were two court-martials, sorry, not two court-martials, there were two, two essential inquests inquiry. were taking place, one in, one in Jervis Street Hospital and one in the Matter Hospital, which were only released at the end of the 1990s, early 2000s. Uh, so they were suppressed basically for 80 years. And when you read the evidence of those, there, is, there are soldiers and there are policemen who, give, who do claim that the shooting began from inside. But the great bulk of the evidence, just, it's just not sustainable. I, I did, here's the conclusion from it. Uh, this is the military inquiry. This, this would have been a document held in the National Archives in Kew in London. That the first shots were fired by the crowd and led to the panic. And that the firing on the crowd was carried out without orders and was indiscriminate and unjustifiable. Except for those who were inside yes. the, um, the compound. So uh, th there's, an, there's an acknowledgement that what happened was a breakdown of discipline. It's about as far as they could go yeah. mm. to, to say, look, this was... Yeah. This, but even then, yeah. they didn't publish, yeah. publish the findings from this. But isn't it problematic as well, Paul, for the GAA, um, in that, I mean, as, you know, you, you would have done a lot of work on the GAA during the revolutionary period generally, and it's a much, much more complex picture, the GAA's relationship with... Uh, the Republican movement, um, that does Bloody Sunday cement the GA's relationship with the Republican movement or does it create more difficulties for them? It, it absolutely puts the GA for the first time at the centre of the Irish Revolution during this period. If you look, for example, at 1916, what happened after the 1916 Rising, the GA issued a statement on the week after it to say it had absolutely nothing to do with this, this rising and statements by Dublin Castle that it was involved were wrong. In the months after the rising, the GEA not alone went to Westminster to meet members of the British government, but actually went as well to meet General Maxwell, the executioner of the rebels, to discuss the availability of trains for GEA matches and exemption from the payment of entertainments tax. And so this is, this is a an organisation which is then slowly radicalised through 1917, 1918, 1919, but very slowly radicalised. It was radicalised by appearances in 1918 on the, um, the anti-conscription platforms with the Catholic Church and with members of, of the kind of the rising Sinn Féin membership who were coming. And it was more uh, radicalised in 1919 as the War of Independence took on and these 1916 veterans and people like Harry Boland began to assume um, parts of power, and you can see it. So, for example, in 1914, the GAA, Clare won the All-Ireland Hurling Final and paraded before a banner, which was a tribute to Willie Redmond. They play in 1917 and 1918 under a banner, banner which is Up Devil Era. So there's a change, there's a shift in that. A.C. Harty, the secretary of the Leinster GAA, stood for re-election in 1918 against Jack Shoulders, uh, an IRA man and he was beaten 16 votes to one, and presumably Harty voted for himself. So it's a shift in, it's a shift in the radicalisation of who's in control of the GEA during these years. And by 1920, people like Boland are in the ascendancy, and they're issuing statements to say that if you take the oath of allegiance, and civil servants have to take the oath of allegiance, you then now must leave. You must leave the GEA, you're not, you cannot any longer be a member. So the ban on foreign games was uh, extended all across the way and it caused a split. But this was a mark of, of absolute radicalization from an organization which, and we can talk about how this happened later if you want, yeah. but from an organization which uh, had many, many members who fought in the British Army in the Great War. 
And now Bloody Sunday becomes the place which is thrown out. And you see things like there's a dispute in Waterford in 1931 between Waterford United Soccer Club and the local GEA. And the chairman of the GEA, Willie Walsh, has made this speech where he said, look, this, our organisation was targeted by the British in the war. Your organisation wasn't, as in Walford United, the soccer club, he said. When, when the British wanted to find Irish rebels on Bloody Sunday, they knew where to go. They didn't go to Dalymount Park and they didn't go to Lansdowne Road because they, they, there, they, would have found, they wouldn't find men like the directors and players of Walford United Football Club in Croke Park. Yeah. So it became a, a touchstone and something that could be rhetorically thrown at. Yeah. The opponent uh, of the GA. I mean, and what did it become for Britain? I mean, coming back to the context uh, for 1920, David Lloyd George, as the British Prime Minister at the time, um, had very little sympathy for those uh, who were slain yeah. on, on Bloody Sunday morning. Yeah. Uh, he was actually quite dismissive uh, yeah. of them. Yeah. Um, and there's also a sense that there's always dialogue going on, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even when things are. Uh, really at their worst. Mm -hmm. C.J. Phillips, who was in the British Foreign Office, re referred to this slender link that had been established between himself and Arthur Griffith, who was seen as more you know, moderate at the time as an imprisoned Sinn Féinor. Um, does, this, does this event hugely uh, complicate um, the sense of a way out, or does it actually facilitate it, do you think? I mean, there's a mixture of things going on. You're absolutely right. Lloyd George is saying one thing in private, and he's saying another in public. He's supposed to have said, you know, they, they, they were, you know, it was their own fault. They yeah. were here, they were beaten by, a, what, what, I think he calls them, a group of counter-jumpers. Yeah. In other words, young fellas, clerks, young lads who work in, the, in Dublin, be, you know, effectively are able to come into your homes and kill you. But in public, very, very different. You know, they have funerals for nine of the men killed in the morning, and bring them to, they give them, like, official funerals. They bring them to Westminster Abbey. And if you think of it in, the, in a wider context, they've just had two weeks before this, they've had the ceremony for the, the t to uh, install the tomb of the unknown soldier. So they're making a very, very big propaganda moment of the morning, maybe partly to make up for what you've yeah. just said about the, the problems of the afternoon. So on the one hand, you're getting that reaction. But then if you think of, just move out a few, even within a week, you've got Kilmichael. And, you know, in a way, that is a huge shock to them as well. But what you do have, and, and this is where it becomes a really big issue, how do you weigh up what the consequences of the morning are in terms of the British reaction? Yeah. Like, they introduced martial law in parts of the country on the 10th of December. That's in reaction to a mixture of Kilmichael, Bloody Sun. Things are in, they can see things are in terms of... Of course, Kilmichael, 17 auxiliaries killed in, yeah. uh, in Cork, yeah. which is a huge yeah. body count for yeah. the British at that stage. Now, the consequences of that are you've got, a, you know... A, really makes, it makes big problems for how the IRA can conduct their activities once you introduce martial law in those different parts of the country. So there's a big clampdown in response to these, this sequence of events over November into December. So it's, you know, in that sense, this is, there's a, a very clear and sharp response. But you're absolutely right. There, there's sort of attempts to, you know, there's talks going on in the background that might lead towards something in December mm. that fall apart. Yeah. Um, Which I suppose it might partly reflect mm -hmm. David Lloyd George's position at the head of a coalition government. He has hawks and he has doves, Absolutely. and the, yeah. the, the, the hawks are stronger at that time, yeah. it seems. Yeah. But at the same time, I suppose what I'm getting at, did it force a reassessment of the kind of long-term objectives? Like, what, what's achievable here? Yeah. If this kind of story, Bloody Sunday story, is going around the world, mm. and it completely refutes the assertions of 
Yeah. Senior British establishment figures about. Yeah, yeah this idea that they've murdered by the throat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which, which had only come yeah. uh, two yeah. weeks previously. Yeah. But I David Lloyd George maintained in London that they had murder by the throat in Ireland. I mean, what it does show is just it exposes the weaknesses within British intelligence, if you like, in Dublin at the time. What they then do, they don't make the same mistakes again. What you do see that evening, allegedly, are a number of other officers and men who were stationed in these types of lodging houses around Dublin moving very, very swiftly into Dublin Castle that night and bringing their bag and baggage with them. Yeah. Um, what you don't see are the same kinds of sloppy approaches to intelligence. They're, they're act they actually get better at yeah. intelligence as, as over the next few months. Within now, the isn't city. that an important point? Absolutely. Particularly when you go back to the narrative of, of British intelligence being wiped out. Yes, yeah. It was not. No, no. And the very fact that the IRA are planning another type of Bloody Sunday type attack towards the end of the conflict is interesting. It's, suge it's suggestive yeah. in itself that this hasn't worked. Was Michael Collins lucky, if that is not too perverse a question, with what happened in the afternoon? Um, I don't know if... Um, I think what it did was it framed up the morning in a different way and it allowed claims to be made about the morning and it cast a light on, I think, what, I think if lucky is the word to use, I think what the afternoon did was it, it, it was a propaganda, apart from the appalling nature of the carnage, and we, that's, that goes almost without saying, but it, but it should be, the, the, it, what it did was it exposed the apparent brutality of British rule. It exposed the bankruptcy of the rule, and then the fact that you go to martial law within a month, it says, okay, this is ungovernable. And martial law is not sustainable for a long time. And it says it's a place apart, thereby making the case for Michael Collins and make that, that what it is. So in and of itself, it was, the actual actions were pivotal, much more it is than, than could, destroying an intelligence. Could you argue that the events of the afternoon almost neutralised the revulsion? And we have to remember that, that what happened in the morning would have repulsed an awful lot of people, including those who consider themselves to be nationalists. Oh, this really matters. If you look at, for example, McCurtain and McSweeney, the two great martyrs of, 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 of Cork, they um, both had expressed their huge concerns about the nature of Republican violence mm. and the manner in which it was being conducted. And this was, this was not, and it, it understands, like Anne, Anne's article on, on, on Bloody Sunday is, it's a superb piece of work. And there's a line in, in, in the middle of it when it says there is much to reconcile when what you see is a man in his pyjamas clinging to his wife, which is the story, I think, of W.F. Newbury, who was trying to escape out the window and ends up caught on the window and dying on the window. And there's blood everywhere. There's blood everywhere in the Gresham Hotel when the men are shooting. And all the testimony from that talks about the blood that's flown around the place. And it, 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 something like that has to have an impact on things. It's, it's, a, it's a different type of war. And it's war right at your doorstep. And Anna, are we more likely now, 100 years on, to focus on that sense of the individual victims, perpetrators, and, and the circumstances? Because... The thing about an event like Bloody Sunday is it becomes a national yeah. uh, tragedy. Mm. It becomes a national event. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the individuals involved would actually get lost. Absolutely. And, and in ways it reflects changes in the, the wider historiography of conflict, not just here, but much, much further afield. And the fact that we have, our, our records are incredibly rich. We can find out these things about these individuals. But what has been very striking is that shift towards more and more information. 
and wanting to find out more things, not just about the afternoon people, but the morning people as well. But I mean, what I've been very struck by, looking at testimony from a number of the different individuals who are involved in the morning time, whether it's to their pension application, the Bureau, Ernie O'Malley in their own memoirs, whatever it might be, they talk about the morning, but they never mention the afternoon, or they don't make any connection between one and the other, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. They don't want to see that, or maybe think about the question, that did anything I do, did in the morning, did that possibly yes. lead to what happened in the afternoon? Yeah. And there's something, just read, they never mentioned the women. I think William Stapleton is the only one I found so far who says there was a woman there. And he never, he just says she was there. He never mentions anything about the context of what she's saying or doing or anything like that. They don't mention blood, they don't mention lots of different things, but the, the fact that they don't make that connection with the afternoon I find is really interesting. One of them, I think, Liam Tobin, in an interview with Ernie O'Malley, presuming was never going to be published, sort of said, well, you know, the, the killing of McKee and Clancy, he doesn't even bother to mention Clune. The killing of McKee and Clancy, that kind of ruined the day for us. Yeah. Again, no mention of And again, this is another part of yeah. the Bloody Sunday story. Yeah. You know, yeah. but, but even three. within, exactly, but even within, within Bloody Sunday in Crow Park and the GA, establishing exactly who was shot and when they died and the nature... But did the GAA do them justice, Paul? Well, for, for a long time, I think they have been done justice now, if, 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 you, can, if you can put it like that. I think, I think Michael Foley's book, The Bloodied Field, was a significant change. I think the fact that headstones have now been erected on the graves of, of all of those who'd lain in unmarked graves over the last... Over the last uh, you mentioned year. Jerome O'Leary. I mean, that was only a year ago. Last year, yeah, it's last year. And look, that is a credit to the GEA. But, but you, you made it the point really well earlier that... What happens, I think, when an event like this happens is that the individuals get lost as the event moves into the wider nationalist narrative of struggle. And it becomes about Michael Hogan come, as the player and the named figure comes to personify all the, all the victims. Yeah. But really, nobody could name the rest of the victims. Mm. Nobody knew anything about the research hadn't been done. They'd been essentially lost to history in, in what happened. Their names had been buried in, in what are essentially glorified inquests, which were smothered and, and hidden by, by the British state. And the war moved on, and it assumed its position in nationalist mythology, in the, in the mythology of struggle and of grievance, and understandably so. But the individuals fell out of the story. And the same with the morning. I mean, yeah. one of the, like the, the man, one of the guys killed in the Gresham, he's related to Michael Davitt. You know, there's, there's Michael all, Davitt of, of Landry yeah, fame. Yeah, so like, there's all these different connect yeah. again, they, they the connections. Again, they, they fall into a very particular view of morning versus afternoon, or morning, you know, the each, are, each are made too, 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 just far too simplified. And, and is it too simplified to compare the two bloody Sundays uh, without getting into the details yeah. of 1972? Uh, there'll be plenty of reflection on that for the 50th anniversary, not mm. too distant future. Mm. But uh, both events um, as, as turning points, are, do we have to be very careful, you know, given the different contexts uh, of, of making the comparisons between the two Bloody Sundays? I think there's an inevitable, the very fact of, of, of it sharing a name mm. makes it... Um, makes a comparison inevitable, not least because it's violence by an armed force representing a state on innocent individuals who are, who are doing so. I think there's, a, there's an inevitable uh, desire to, make a, to draw a parallel between the two. Now, where you run into the problematic is discerning the impact and, this yeah. talk, and the no notions of turning points. I think in both cases, 
to argue that they don't have an impact is not sustainable. But measuring the impact depends on how you, run, how you read it. And if you look, I've just, I just read uh, Patrick Radden Keefe's book, Say Nothing, which is uh, kind of the story of, of, well, it's Gene McConville and everything that flows from that. And it's, it's an extraordinary book, which, which should be read. And it talks about this idea of memory and how memory, how people remember an event and how the event isn't just a thing itself, but the manner in which it drives people to act afterwards. And I think the shared thing between bloody, the two Bloody Sundays is that sense of a reaction and how it's in the mind as, as evidence of the absolute reckless bankruptcy and the, the amorality of, of British rule in Ireland is how it's framed up for, for people who choose to act afterwards. And Anne, 100 years on, I mean, do you have strong views on how an event like Bloody Sunday should be uh, commemorated? Um, you know, should this be yeah. a, a GAA commemoration? Should it be a state commemoration? Yeah. Should it belong to um, the families of the victims and, and neither state nor GAA? Or, you know, what? Yeah, I mean, it's, what's the. Um, is there I don't an th appropriate way? Yeah, I, don't, I think no matter what you say, there's no right way to do these because no matter what you do, you leave someone out, you forget someone, something doesn't get done right, somebody's upset by it. I don't, I don't think it should be a state thing, no matter, you know, I think that it isn't really uh, a thing for the, the state to get involved in in a very direct way. I think the GAA are doing a really interesting yeah. thing with it. They, they're, you know, there's a number of talks going on, there's all sorts of exhibitions, and they're doing it in a very interesting way. They're, you know, they're bringing in the morning time. They're thinking about it, I think, in a, in a very interesting way, and they're allowing a space for it to be discussed in a, a much more interesting way than even, say, a few years ago. I, I was very struck I gave a talk about this. I was asked to give a talk in the National Library as society, it's like regular big public uh, talks and they actually, you know, give talk on, on Bloody Sunday and the assumption was, just the automatic assumption was, I was going to be talking about Croke Park. Well, well I, I, I agree with that. I think, I think the, in the GA Museum there's a really interesting series of talks. I think the exhibition mm -hmm. is good. I think what the publication of various things around it and I would contrast that and I regret to say this but I would contrast it with Cork GA's um, issuing of a commemorative jersey earlier this year in which on the front of it there are the, in the pictures of Terence McSweeney and Thomas McCartan. On the back of it there is the burning image of the burning of Cork and the, and the Kilmichael ambush. And to me this sort of synthetic mural uncontextualised is absolutely inappropriate. Whereas for, for, for I would give the GA a huge amount of credit for, the, for what they plan to do for Bloody Sunday. I mean, I think in ways talking about it like this is, this is a way of commemorating yeah. things which are much more effective than I don't know, a minister going somewhere and standing for a few yeah. minutes and saying something that may or may not offend people. Yeah. You know, just having the, the, the freedom to talk a bit more about it. And we can do that because, you know, yeah. Katrina and others have made such huge efforts over the years to actually give us the records to look at and work on and make them freely available to And everybody. that opens the door, of course, <laughs> to this audience and those who are listening online because these conversations need to be inclusive mm -hmm. uh, as well. And these events yeah. are by no means the preserve of professional historians. So... Uh, thank you both very much for, the, for those insights. We'll come back um, uh, to you in, in, in response to any questions that we might have here in the audience. Uh, how you doing? Thank, thank you very much. A very interesting talk. Question for the panel. Um, it was a very sort of quick response from the British after the, the morning events. Is there anything to be gained from that? Is there anything interesting to be, you know, would it not be n more normal for a couple of days or from like investigation or is that a normal sort of reaction that would be so quick and 
that it sort of devolves into violence? Was there maybe, per, you know, members who, who arrived that had some personal connection with those or something to that effect? Yeah, so, so why did they go, basically, why did they go into Croke Park almost, isn't yeah. that? Yeah, well, and why only a few hours after the, the, okay. the morning attacks? I, I, I think it's, I think, my personal view from reading the material is, and this is one of the great, it's a great question because it's one of the contested areas in this, but my personal view is that they went there, Dublin had been relatively becalmed in terms of its operations. The view was that the Tipperary, IRA with Sean Tracy coming in that there had been an increase in murders during November there had been various events happening and and the view was that that the GEA more and more was being used as a cover for operations and here look these guys came into the city under cover of playing this match they were going to go to Crow Park and they're going to try and they're going to try and push out so there is there is a logic of sorts in that and where the logic breaks down is when two individuals, and it looks like it started with two particular individuals, started firing guns before they got even to the ground. And then it was 90 seconds of mayhem. And of course, Paul, doesn't that raise the wider question there of the inability of the British side and the Crown forces in Ireland to have a unified command? You know, the lack of discipline, the lack of agreement, even amongst those who were supposedly in charge of them, mm -hmm. you know, about trying to coordinate how they operate, yeah. that that had, had really been exposed. Th that's exactly right. And the Labour, the Labour Party Commission, when it came over, was really clear on this, mm. yeah. that, this is, they, that these are all over the place. And it used the phrase brutality and lack of self-control. Yeah. How, how can you run a military operation? How can you run any operation, let alone a military operation? But even the fundamental question of whether they were police or yeah. soldiers. Yeah, this, the, and then there's also anger, of course, Anne. You know, yeah, there's huge amounts of real frustration. I think you're right, because, I mean, you can see it in, in uh, not just that rush into Dublin Castle, but, you know, there's one chap in, who, who kills himself in Dublin Castle. He's had shell shock from the First World War. It's said at his inquest he's so upset by what had happened in the morning that he kills himself that night. But there's a huge amount of anger as well as that. And in a way, how do you? It, it's almost interesting how is that, it, it would have been surprising if that anger had managed to be contained yeah. for a few days, if you like. Uh, but I think you're right. There is that moment of mayhem thing. But you can see it. I remember coming across it in I think the Imperial War Museum of a, a British soldier who was in Ireland writing sort of memoirs much much later on saying we were assigned these cohort of auxiliaries to come to you know go on. Uh, patrols with them and he said oh, well I had to effectively station one fella to watch what they were doing so there's this real lack of coherence yeah. and that you know you've got soldiers who have been told to behave as if they're policemen you've got policemen who are behaving like they're you know they've got yeah. holsters on their legs and all sorts of stuff so you've a very very mixed and up crucially they're, they're also facing an enemy who are often in civilian garb absolutely yeah, yeah. which yeah. is an added it's yeah. not the kind of warfare they're used to exactly and they come yeah. back in but the, the, the point you make is really important though about the lack of a unified command centre, because even on the day itself, you have, and you see this in the testimony that was, that was given at the inquest, where they, give, they say the people in charge of the different units say different things, uh, as in the Dublin Metropolitan Police, the RIC, the Black and Tans, and, and the Army, they're giving different types of evidence. And of course, if you have three or four people in control, it means nobody's in control. Yeah. And it's in, those, it's in that vacuum that things, that things go crazy.
Yeah, but there is that real connection. They associate things. With it. Absolutely, that thing about they think these are fellows up from Tipperary. Yes. They don't quite believe it. Like at one point, I think I can't remember who it was. Somebody in Dublin Castle is saying they've bought in American gunmen for a hundred pounds a time or something. Like they just can't quite fathom who these people are that are doing this. Kind yeah, of stuff. they're all over the place, yeah, and it, yeah. it 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 happens. This role of Tipperary in, in the War yeah, of Independence in yeah, general is yeah. is really interesting because it goes way beyond the county. It is the county, but it goes, the tentacles of Tipperary is everywhere. And it, it starts with that mm. first shooting in the quarry in January 1919, and it yeah. goes on from there the whole way through the war. Hi, um, thanks very much for a fascinating uh, talk, and I think we all learned a lot uh, from, from this discussion. Uh, there's a few questions, I mean, I think there's so many questions actually, but um, the idea that there were so many people uh, engaged in the morning, to kind of carry out the operation, and they had to go somewhere, they had to blend in somewhere. Um, was there any intelligence that they were at Croke Park? I mean, why did the, you know, I didn't, I didn't really get a clear answer about why, why everybody went to Croke Park, like the British, right? Um, despite the mayhem that, that ensued. Um, what I'm really interested in is the trauma that you spoke about, and um, this idea that we just, we just took that narrative away, that story, those, you know, about those, um, that one particular gentleman that you referred to um, whose testimony was about you know how they were affected by that and have we kind of collectively as a nation kind of conveniently you know as the victors and um, just it's just not we're just not comfortable with that because it, you know there was people like the chap and the Gresham that you know you're not sure where, who's innocent and who's guilty here and yeah. Yeah. You know, but we'll never know because they're secret right yeah. but um, I just think that's a really fascinating thing, and we're only starting to talk about it, and obviously there'll be a lot more discussions about this in the coming years, but were this some, is there some seed of the civil war here where we're trying to, it's almost like your sides are suddenly really defined, clearly defined, after this particular day, mm -hmm. um, where before maybe both sides weren't so, wasn't clear who, who was on what side or who was who. Do you know, do you know what I mean? I suppose there's a lot there to yeah. respond to, but... I mean, I think the, the question of trauma is a really difficult one. I mean, it's such a huge field now of... A trauma studies. ...anything to do with war and conflict and all the rest of it. Like, and it's a very problematic one because none of us are trained in that way to diagnose these things. Yeah. I think we have to be incredibly careful. Um, I mean, say, for example, in the Morehampton Road case, two of about seven or eight men who we know were there spent some time in Grange Gorman Asylum. Whether they would have spent time there Anyway, is another. We can't answer. Do you know what I mean? I think it's a very. It's too easy to draw a straight line between. They were in Morehampton Road in the morning, and they end up in Grange Gorman at a later stage of their life. That it, that's a very. It's very very tricky territory to wade into, and just assume A plus B equals C. Do, do you know what I mean? Um, because you know, people are troubled by all sorts of things in their lives. How people deal with this uh, day is very, very interesting. Some of them don't talk about it very much, others talk about it all the time. It becomes a very interesting moment in the military service pensions for people from in, the, in Dublin trying to claim active service. Um, they use it almost as, well, I was, I was there on Bloody Sunday. And almost no more questions are asked to them. Yeah. One of them even says, you know, I think a chap called Albert Rutherford, his name sort of stuck in my head. He was in one of these places. And he said, well, I was there, this, 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 what I had to do there was, was awful. I should be given a full pension for that day alone. Mm. And there's that sense in his mind anyway, that this day stood out as being a different task than other tasks he'd been asked to do as a volunteer. 
But it's very, very tricky territory because, as I said, we can't just wade in. We're not and, trained psychiatrists. Absolutely, no, you're absolutely right. And I got a letter from Charlie Dalton's daughter, uh, who's still alive, um, and she is quite upset at this mm. uh, information in the public domain yeah. about uh, some of her father's difficulties. And as far as she's concerned, that's not what her father was reduced to. He had yeah. difficulties, fully acknowledged. Yeah. But, you know, she, does, she sees him in the round and as well as a father. Yeah. Uh, so we do have to be careful. Yeah, and I mean, he's, he's a really interesting case because he's someone who's always been linked with the killing of a couple of teenage, three teenage boys then the Civil War in period, whose parents, and one of their parents in turn ends up getting a military service pension, and mother, mother and father both can't work anymore. Their pension is, it's said on the pension, do not write back to their home because they can't even look at a letter with his name on it. So Dalton is this very, very interesting. And back to the, I think something you said earlier about perpetrators and victims. These are very blurred categories now for us. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. Dalton has, you know, he's he has he's in a variety of different institutions, but he then he, he leaves those institutions. Yeah. He goes back. He goes back to work. Yeah. I came across a mention of him in a newspaper article. I think in the late 40s, where he's in a kind of a not a car crash as such, someone comes out in front of him yeah. in a car and, he, and the, he gets out, the two of them get out of the car and they have a row and at some point he says, it comes out in the court case, um, he says, you know, if, if basically if, if it was 20 years ago I would have dealt with you differently. Yeah. And so there's the, these, these people have very, very different stories and in a way the danger is that we conflate, in the same way that you're talking about that we've conflated the day to these big generalisations. Yeah. There's now the, almost the opposite is the case. Yeah. The danger is we conflate either part yeah. of the day or any part of any day of the revolution to any but it, one it, it does explain the silence as well, because Absolutely. that yeah. obviously for many of them was the yeah. way to deal with it. We're not talking about this. Yeah. We're not going over it. A lot of yeah. it clearly is internalised and, you know, depending on an individual's um, temperament and, and support or whatever yeah. it is, I mean, that can... Yeah. Uh, work in different ways. But I mean, what is striking about Dalton as well is that Lamas, Sean Lamas writes, sits down um, in 1941-42, in the middle of the war, when he's plenty of other things to be doing as Minister for Supplies at that point, yeah. and he writes a five-page handwritten letter in support of Charles Dalton's yeah. application, and Dalton's on the other side of the Civil War, so there's just And even Emmett, I mean, his brother yeah. Emmett, I mean, yeah. Michael Collins dies in Emmett's lap at Bale in 1922, and I mean, Emmett had seen the horrors of the trenches of the First World War as well, and he's still only in his early 20s. Um, it, it's fascinating to think of, of what some of that generation uh, endured at a very uh, young age. And I suppose, again, it's, like, and it's a bit like the afternoon, rather than having these simple stories, you're actually looking at well, what did any of these people, no matter what side they were on or where they ended up, what did they actually go through as part of Well, isn't that the phrase you use about yeah. looking for the shreds of humanity? Mm. You know, and it's not necessarily about making judgments about what they yeah. did uh, or didn't do. It's I, think that, I think that's right, and I think it fits with that question, this idea that you don't find recourse in some sort of, or you don't find refuge in a cartoon history where it's goodies and baddies and it's mm -hmm. just, you know, the murderers are what, is, is what are on the other side and mm -hmm. the liberators are on this side. And all of that. you have to be really careful once you go down that, to, to go down that road. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a natural impulse from people when they look at things in history because that's the way it's been framed up as part of the, the story but the real interest in the day are in the tangles between the stories mm. and in the ambiguities that are there and I, 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 that's what I would find much more fascinating than banging any tribal drum. Mm. Yeah, two here. Just uh, following on from the uh, comments that you've made there 
Um, Michael Collins, I mean, obviously, in a way, as far as most people are concerned, I mean, his reputation has been very high. And how does all of this kind of, when you look at it more closely as, as, as you have, how, how would that, you think that would impact on our understanding of Collins and our appreciation of him or otherwise? Well, we're lucky to have a Collins expert here <laughs> <Yeah>. and has <laughs> co-authored a book with William Murphy on Michael Collins, um, which is a wonderfully original take on him. So, Anne, that's, that's for you. Collins um, is a very interesting one on this because, as I said earlier, I mean, in, in, he gets this, uh, this quite interesting defence ready when he goes to London because he thinks he's going to be asked about this day. <laughs> And he, you know, it's, it's, it very much holds the party line, if you like. They were all spies and, you know, that we, we did what we had to do in private. And it's, and it's really striking when um, Captain McCormick's mother writes to Richard Mulcahy and says, could you please say my son wasn't a spy? Um, he takes that letter to Collins and Collins just says, sure, I barely knew who was on the list. Um, but, they, you know, most of them are just regular officers. The sense in which Collins has become this focal point um, for everything that happened isn't fair on him or most of the people around him. Um, he's, he's a really interesting figure in the sense that he's, he's, he works very well because he's a, he's a very interesting machine around him. Mm. And if you take away any one bit of that machine, he's a much lesser figure. Um, I don't think looking at... Unlike a very senior politician who went to Bell and and said he was a one-man revolution. Indeed. <laughs> he's a one-man writer of letters. I mean, he's just phenomenal. He's incredibly efficient, though, wasn't Absolutely. he? Absolutely. Like, but he's, his... And he's got his fingers in all sorts of pies all over the place. Um, but it did feed into that idea of, into of the man the, who won it, the war, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. And to some extent, he's very conscious of this idea of himself as the man who won the war. And he talks openly about it in terms of, you know, on the one hand, don't send me to London, do send me to London, don't send me to London. He says, don't send me to London because I'm this figure of the man who won the war. And as long as I look like that and you leave me at home, I'm more powerful as this, this mystery man. When they see the reality of me, the reality of me, they're going to be deeply disappointed. So he, he's very, very conscious of that image. You're absolutely right. And he uses that image very effectively. He talks about it in the treaty debates as well. So, but at the same time, he, he's quite open about, particularly about Bloody Sunday, when he responds to Mulcahy about that woman's letter. You know, basically, I, you know, that was, that was the stuff that was being dealt with. Julie by. Roberts had the best line, didn't she, in 1996? Mm. Do you think they got the message, Mick? Um, and ways that film added to this yeah. sense that he's this, this only figure. And this, yeah, the and, orchestrator. And, and, the, and the film, in a way, the, the, the way that it portrayed Bloody Sunday Morning is, is, is quite and the interesting. Yeah. 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 The afternoon. Yeah. But it's yeah. a very important part of, of how the uh, narrative is relayed yeah. in, in different uh, forms over yeah. the years. And, and yeah. for some people, their first introduction to Bloody Sunday yeah. was that film. You know? yeah. And Collins went back to Croke Park after the ceasefire, or the truce, in July of, after July 1921. And him and Harry Boland, are, were, it was all set up with the Irish independent photographs yeah. outside where himself and Harry Boland, before Dublin take Kenny in the Leinster Hurling final, they're pictured hurling mm. with each other out in the field. And it's kind of a schoolboy at play is the, is the yeah. caption. And it's this idea that, you know, this man is like, he's an iconic figure. But now with the war stuff, I'm back out there. Yeah. I'm visible. Yeah. But like the, his loss of like Dick McKee, you were talking about McKee earlier. I mean, he, I think he, he comes out and he, he shoulders McKee's coffin at the funeral. So like yeah. the loss of McKee and Clancy is enormous, yeah, like yeah. absolutely enormous to him in particular. Because yeah. He's Dick, Mc, uh, Dick McKee and Power Clancy, two key, uh, two key people for um, at the IRA at that time who were um, uh, executed um, 
as a direct consequence of, of, of Bloody Sunday, and of course it was uh, immediately communicated that they had been uh, shot okay. whilst trying to escape. Yeah. Uh, more propaganda. So right. Thanks. I just want to ask the panel, do you think that the British state and the British so-called sophisticated army learned anything from the first Bloody Sunday when 52 years later they'd done the exact same? And then we had to drag reports out of them, the Widgery report and whoever, report after report after report, just to get near the truth. They haven't learned a single thing. And then Cameron has to come out so many years later and apologise. You know, when they originally think, okay, they were innocent. Is it still the old, we're Irish, and the old mantra, being Irish means we're guilty? It doesn't really count that much. The heads went down there. Oh, I'm happy to answer <laughs> that. I'm happy to answer well, well, I'd make the point that I made earlier, that the parallels in what happened are quite striking of an out-of-control, reckless thing who have a disregard for, for, for human life of, of people and then engage in a cover-up where the lives of those who are the victims of, of state violence are, are doubly mistreated and the lies and calumnies that are heaped upon them. And I chose, again, an out-of-control security apparatus which is bolstered by a state which is unprepared to tell the truth. And in both instances, it re reveals the, the bankruptcy of a political settlement that's in, that's in place, is how I'd look at it. I suppose if looking at it in terms of the, like looking at British records in the immediate aftermath of the morning, say, or even some of the other things that are going on at the time, what's really striking about British cabinet records all the way through the War of Independence period is the extent to which I think I, you kind of almost go over to the archives in London thinking, God, Ireland's going to be really high up on the list every day. And you go in, you see, well, God, there's the, the you know, poverty at home, unemployment, yeah. Egypt, India, Mesopotamia, oh, God, Ireland. And it's, kind, it's very much, the, and you can see why they're so disorganised, because in a way they're, being, they're, they're stretched, but they've got more territory all over the world to think about and worry about than they've ever had before. They're stretched every which way. Henry Wilson's um, diaries are, you know, they're constantly, you know, writing to Lloyd George, give, I need 10,000 more men on the Rhine, get them out of Ireland. And this, this sort of sense of they're reacting to things here rather than planning as, 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 as carefully as we might think they should be. They're actually just, they're running on their feet. They really are just trying to keep up with what's going on. Uh, there are remarkable parallels uh, between 1920 and the early 1970s in relation to how senior British figures viewed Ireland and the Irish. You know, General Neville Macready, who has been mentioned as the commander of the British forces in Ireland, you know, was on record as saying, I loathe Ireland. You know, he hated the Irish more than the Germans, which is saying something for a senior British military figure of his uh, era. But you get certain private admissions along the same lines in the early 1970s. Um, and, you know, what both events illustrate, I suppose, is that they're not in control of their Irish question or their Irish problem, despite their public assertions to the contrary. They're very worried about American public opinion. I mean, yeah. it's really interesting when the treaty signed, I think there's a letter back from a fellow called Rawlinson who's in, in, based in India, and he's just got news the treaty's been signed, and he writes back to, to a friend in London, and he says, at least now we'll be able to clean the slate with America, we can start again, you know, the Americans will be happy with us. Yeah. It, 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 it does, it so does another thing, though, as well, though, doesn't it? It does, it does this thing that it shows the fact of Ireland being a place apart. It's not, you cannot claim that either Belfast, or, or you cannot claim that either Derry or Dublin or Newcastle or Liverpool or something else, it, because it doesn't happen there. It happens here, mm -hmm. and it happens in, in violence here. 
and it, again, it makes the case almost that these are events that are supposed to protect the British presence in Ireland, but actually undermine it. But at the same time, what some of the things they're doing in other parts of the world, while they're doing what they're doing here, yes. they're doing other things that they won't do here. They're bombing from the air in other places. They're not doing that here. And there's a real sense of division. You can see it again in some of the British records that you know, Irish people have, have, still have MPs in the House of Commons. You know, that's not happening from, you know, representatives from India don't have that. There's a sense in which this is a very different place in the British mindset than other parts, as they say, of their empire. Do you know, it's, well, that, yes, it is. So it's caught forward. between two. Yes. Yeah. Well, you've certainly reminded us uh, with your great insights and your expertise and your enlightenment that this really is a multi-layered uh, conflict. <laughs> and Bloody Sunday itself was uh, an event that contained many layers and uh, still, of course, will generate a lot of very strong feelings and debate, but um, I think the contribution you've made this morning to um, our knowledge of the event and the different perspectives we can bring to bear on it has uh, been absolutely enormous uh, and very enjoyable. So would you please, with me, thank Paul and Anne. Thank you for listening to First Thought. For more, visit the Talks page on Galway International Arts Festival's website, giaf.ie.